Shalom, brothers and sisters, and welcome to another episode of Jacob's Seed Podcast. Listen, I have in my hand right now a study from the Pew Research Report that says that black voter turnout rate declined for the first time in 20 years in a presidential election following the 59.6% in the 2016 election after reaching a record high 66.6% in the 2012 election. So my question to you is, from the highest of the high of 66.6% in 2012, Obama's second run at president, to our lowest point in 20 years at 59.6% in voter turnout during Trump's first campaign run, I want you to look around your community real closely and answer me this one question. What's changed? Let's get into it. Me read it like a master. I be your Israelite soldier. Ready when they come I be your Israelite soldier. Ready when they come you. Be like that the scripture. Me read it like a master. Yes, yes, we are Israelite soldiers indeed. Um, I appreciate the brother Lovines uh, for allowing me to use his music here on my pack on my podcast. Um, if y'all would do me a favor, go out and support this brother. He is making good music for the Israelite community. Uh, you can find it on um, Apple Music, uh, Google Play Music, anywhere where you get your music from. Um, his newest album is called Renewal. Um, and his other album is called We the People. Lorvines, L-O-R-V-I-N-S. We the People and Renewal, two great albums. But again, my brothers and sisters, to the 12 tribes that are scattered, to all nations, this is for you. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of Jacob Seeds Podcast. And as you can tell from the intro, today we are talking about politics. We're talking about government. Specifically, does government matter in the so-called black community? Does government matter in the so-called black community? So you heard, um, you heard when I was talking about how the voter turnout rate dropped significantly from 2012 to 2016. So at 2012, we were at about, about almost 67% of the eligible voters who could vote and the African-American community voted. And it dropped down to, let me see here, it dropped down to 59% of, of the eligible voters that could vote voted in the 2016 election. And the overarching question is, which is going to be what, what this podcast is about, has anything in your neighborhood changed as a result of us having a record high black voter turnout? Are your streets paved? Are your schools performing better? Are you getting more aid to your community? Do the cops come in any quicker to your community to aid you when you need assistance? Have the grocery stores either returned or even showed up at all in your community? Is there anything different on your block? Now, I'm talking to a broad audience here, right? Now, we know some of y'all, some, some of us African-Americans, we made it well, and we're living on the East Coast and some of these nice Virginia suburbs and some of these nice California suburbs and some of us living in Hyde Park in Chicago and some of us are living um, in, in, in Bankhead uh, over in, um, in Atlanta, and that's, that's awesome. But for the rest of us... <laughs> For the overarching majority of black and brown folks who are not in these neighborhoods, what's changed? They've always told us, and I was listening to um, the Urban uh, Urban View uh, on Sirius XM Radio last night, and one of the hosts said that, pretty much along the line, I'm paraphrasing, that when we 
participate more or have a better participation rate in government and politics, we get we get better. Uh, what did he say? Policies. So better participation equals better policies. Well, according to the Pew Research Center, we participated the most we have ever. A record high, it says, of 66.6% of eligible voters who were African-American showed up in 2012 to make sure that Romney, Mitt Romney was not president, but Barack Obama served a second term. Now, obviously, a president does not dictate what your streets look, what your streets look like and what stores are on your block and how your schools are performing. But I'm assuming if you went to the voting booth, you didn't just vote for Barack Obama. You also voted for your mayor. You also voted for your, your city councilman. You also voted for your, um, your attorney general. Uh, you voted for your alderman or whatever it may be. You voted for your, 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 uh, your county seats and all that good stuff. So you didn't just go in and mark, boom, Obama, I'm done. Get my little I voted sticker and walk out. No, you probably, I'm assuming if you're smart, you filled out the whole ballot. So you not only voted for a national, but you also voted for local. I know sometimes those things could be two years apart, but I'm assuming if we had high voter turnout, if I look it up, I'm sure this it would agree with me that if we had high voter turnout during the national elections. It would only make sense that we had high voter turnout in the, um, in the local elections as well. But... I live in Memphis, Tennessee, and as I look around the landscape of this city, nothing's changed. A lot of the communities where our brothers and sisters live are still food deserts, which means that there is no adequate grocery store for blocks or miles away. Uh, Memphis, Tennessee is it's not like a Boston or a New York or anything like that where it's, it's, it's densely populated or a Baltimore or something like that. It's extremely spread out. And the transportation system here is dismal, meaning that you have to wait 45 minutes to an hour in between bus rides. And they're trying to fix that, but that's just the reality right now. And there's a lot of people in the African-American community, so-called African-American community, that do not have, that does not have adequate transportation. A Kroger grocery store just closed in one of those African-American communities. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now making it difficult for a lot of our brothers and sisters to get good groceries. Now, you know, when we're in the neighborhood and there's no Kroger, there's no Walmart, there's no Save-A-Lot, there's no Myers, there's no BJ's, there's no um, Trader Joe's or... or, or, or um, Stop and shop or whatever your flavor is or whatever part of the country you're living in. There's no schnooks or nothing like that. We just have the hood grocery stores. Where the liquor option. Is bigger than the food option. So you're going to get yourself a Coke 45 and some hot Cheetos and some cold cuts. And that's a diet. No, that's not cool. So that's that's why I'm bringing this question up. In the African-American community, is government important? Listen, I want you guys to be a part of this conversation. So I want you guys to get on Twitter. I want you guys to get on Instagram. I want you guys to get on Facebook. Um, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Jacob's Seed 12. Jacob's Seed 12. And you can find me on Twitter at Yermayahu15. Yermayahu15. Also, you can call in 901-374-74. 901-374-74. Now, obviously, this is a podcast. This is pre-recorded. Your boy ain't live yet. I'm going to get there. But you can leave a voicemail. Uh, tell me what you think about the uh, politics and government in the African-American community. Does it help? Is it important? Um, 901-374-74. And I will play those voicemails um, on our next podcast. So every Thursday we have a new podcast. So next Thursday I will be playing that uh, voicemail, those voicemails on that podcast before we get that started. Answer those questions 
um, and allow your voices to be heard. But as I look around the landscape, no, no matter whether our, vo- our voter turnout is high or whether our voter turnout is low, it seems to me that a lot doesn't change in our community. So the person who said better participation equals better policy either is ignorant to his current neighborhood or he just don't live in that neighborhood anymore to see that we have, you know, Second Street Corner Store, which is going to give you some cold cuts, some cold beer, some hot Cheetos. That's not a diet. Our roads have potholes. Our houses are boarded up. Our grasses are high. Our schools are failing, despite the fact that a so-called African-American, and we'll get into that, was a president for two terms. What in his presidency was different from the presidency of Bush, who served two terms, or Clinton, who served two terms, or the one term that Trump has served thus far? What is different? About to take a quick break, quick commercial break, and when I come back, We're going to go all the way back to the civil rights era. We're going to start talking about the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments. We're going to talk about the New Deal. And then we're going to open up the can of worms and actually see what what did Obama do? Did he do anything to help us? Didn't he? Did he? We're going to find out after this commercial break. Welcome back, brothers and sisters. Welcome back. So let's let's talk about um, let's let's talk about these amendments, right? Uh, so we first talked about the the voter turnout and how it doesn't matter really how how many of us turn out to voting polls. The question is, what's happening in our neighborhoods? The scriptures tell us that we will know, uh, specifically talking about us, we will know them by their fruits. Uh, but that's that's a universal principle. We will know who people really are, not by the words that come out of their mouths, but by the work that's done by their hands. So what work has your city council member done in your district? What work has your representative done in your district? Now, again, living in Memphis, Tennessee, I'm going to call him out because he's a public figure. Our representative in Memphis, his name is Steve Cohen. I guess I would have to look at his record because I don't necessarily know looking at using my eyes, the eye test, the fruit test, what he has done in the Memphis community, because I've been here since 2006. Smoky City, New Chicago looks the same in Memphis. North Memphis looks the same. South Memphis looks the same. Midtown has changed a bit, but let's 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 be real. Every midtown has changed all over America because gentrification is happening. New people are moving in, so they want it to look attractive. Now the schools are all of a sudden doing better because now people of fairer skin, let's just say it, white folks, are moving into the neighborhood and they're changing it. They're paving the streets. They're opening up coffee shops. Uh, they're they're building new schools and hotels and um, apartment buildings. It's all... It, it's no different in Memphis than it is in Atlanta or Chicago or LA or, or Baltimore, wherever it may be. Gentrification is happening, right? But for those African-American neighborhoods, nothing has changed. Our representative is really good about coming into the black churches, shucking and jiving when it's come, when it's come voting season. But when the rubber hits the road, in my 13 years in Memphis, Tennessee, I have not seen any visible change. None. Now he's good at taking a bucket of fried chicken and mocking people on Congress and trying to impeach Trump. But what work has he done for this community? And you should be asking the same of your representative. What work have they done? Not whether or not you like them or not. Who cares? And that's what we have to get past that, too. I know I'm supposed to be talking about amendments, but doggone, I'm on this soapbox. What work have they done? I can care less if you like them. I can care less, watch this, if they like you. I want to know how you govern. I want to know your policies. I want to see your voting record. 
I want to see what you've done in the past because that's going to give me a litmus test of what you're about to do in the future. And if you have no prior political service done, have you volunteered somewhere? Have you done work in the community? Have you been visible? Is this the first time I've ever heard your name or have I heard your name in in the barbershop talk because you've been doing work in the community? Have I seen you at the recreational center, at the community center? Have I seen you in the after school programs? Have I seen you at the football games? Have I seen you at the basketball games? Have I seen you? And not just seen you, have I seen your works? That's the question we need to be asking the people who are currently in office in your districts, in your counties, in your representatives, in your congressmen, whether state or national or local city. Or, and also, these are the same questions we need to be asking of people who are trying to enter into those positions. But let me get off my soapbox. We're supposed to be talking about amendments. We're supposed to be talking about amendments. All right. Check this out. So the three biggest amendments. <clears throat> Actually, there, 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 there's, there's, there's about, uh, let me see, one, two, three, four, five. There's, there's like six things that the government has done that has supposedly helped the African-American community immensely. So the first of these three amendments, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, which we're about to talk about, then you have the New Deal done by uh, uh, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, excuse me, got tongue, tongue twisted there. Franklin Delano Roosevelt did the New Deal. Actually, if you know your history, there was two New Deals. We're not going to get that deep into it. Um, then we have the Civil Rights Act and we have the Voting Rights Act. So those six things. Three amendments to the Constitution, two acts, one deal. The 13th Amendment supposedly eradicated slavery, setting slaves free. So this is the first act of the United States government trying to help the so-called African-American. Now, we know this doesn't stand. Because if you go to the Constitution and you read the 13th Amendment, you'll quickly understand that the 13th Amendment did not end slavery. What? Yes, the 13th Amendment did not end slavery. It just transferred the ownership from a human being into an institution, which we call prisons. So now the Jackson clan, the Jackson family could no longer own slaves unless the Jackson family bought a penal farm. Now all of a sudden they're working back in my lawn, cutting down and growing my tobacco and my sugar cane, still picking my cotton because now I no longer own a plantation I own a penal farm. And check this out. I'm going to make it very, very difficult for them because now I'm about to put a whole bunch of scrupulous laws on the books that will ensure that a lot of dark-skinned folks, so-called African-Americans, will end up in prison. You look at a white person in the eye, you go into prison. You stand at the bus stop too long, you go into prison. You walk in the wrong neighborhood, you're going to prison. You stand at the, the if, you, if you congregate around the train station too long, you go into prison. So not only did these laws ensure that you go to prison, it also um, stopped a lot of African-Americans from going to work because you can't stand the bus stop too long, from traveling because you can't stand the train station too long. Look, look this stuff up. I'm not lying to you. Look it up. There were, there were so many crazy outlandish laws, which some of them are still on the books today. They don't enforce them. But because there's a lot of just petty counties out there, they kept them on the books for, for fear or whatever. There's so many laws that were enacted to make sure that the African-American would go to prison. Look it up. After the 13th Amendment, the United States 
prison population went through the roof. We only, we have a small, I think it's like 8% of the world's population or something crazy like that, right? But we house 25% of the world's prison population. So this practice has, it's 2019, y'all. This practice has not changed. The 13th Amendment did not help us. It only transferred the ownership of a slave from the massa to the to the prison, from the plantation to the prison. And now we have um, documentaries like the uh, 13th, a documentary that's on Netflix. You can read that or you can watch that. <clears throat> you can also um, read, I believe it's... Um, I believe it's a book called Thir- the 13th too, um, or it's uh, it, it, it's something along those lines. Um, I'll try to get it to you in the next podcast because I'm my brain is somewhere else. I can't think of the name of that book, but it talks about the 13th Amendment and how it, it really didn't help us. What it did was it started to snowball and it, and, it's, and it it was the brainchild and the birthing of what today we call this war on drugs and all this other stuff that's really targeted toward the African-American community. So this amendment that was supposed to free slaves was supposed to be a good thing, right? Didn't help us. It freed us from slavery, supposedly. But again, it transferred us from the plantation to the prison. And now we even have what they call pipeline to prison programs in schools. I don't know if y'all heard about the the African-American kid who uh, was playing dodgeball. I believe he was like, he was... uh, he was in he was in elementary school. Hit a white kid in the head. That's what happens when you play dodgeball, folks. Every now and again, you just might get hit in the head if you ain't quick enough to move. The white kid's parent filed charges of aggravated assault against a 10-year-old black boy for hitting their 10-year-old white boy in the head with the dodgeball. Aggravated assault. They were about to ruin this kid's life. Before it even got started. Because they knew that if they could get the kid in front of a judge, more than likely this kid would probably go to prison. But thankfully, they had a smart attorney general or a principal or somebody or a good lawyer, that African-American family, and the case never saw the light of day. But the point is, stuff like that happens every day and it doesn't make all of it, it doesn't make the news sometimes. There's a lot of black and brown kids who are in who are in juvie awaiting to go to the grown folks prison for some dumb crap they did that 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 the punishment is not fitting the crime at all. And truth be told, some of these cats who stared at white women, who congregated around the bus stop, who just happened to be walking around town, they were lucky they went to prison because a lot of them got strung up on a tree or got beaten half to death and drowned like, um, oh man, the name escapes me. Like Emmett Till. So sometimes prison was, you got lucky, but your life was still messed up. Your life wasn't taken physically. But now once you got out of prison, you, you, it, was like, it was like the 13th Amendment didn't exist because now you don't have any rights anymore have any rights. So the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery, ladies and gentlemen. So some of you that you may have known that, and for others, this comes as a shock and something new to you. The 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery. But let's move on to the second amendment that they say was supposed to help us. The 14th Amendment granted citizenship to every human being born in these United States of America. So that means that every single person who had just been freed from slavery, not only were you so-called free from slavery, but we just learned that it didn't didn't really happen, but now you're a citizen, the greatest country in the world. Did that do anything for us? Did that change the fact that we, the fact that we we getting, that we were getting lynched? that our women were getting raped, that crosses were being burned in our yard, that employment was being taken from us or denied from us, that we did not have a voice in this country that now said that we were citizens of it 
and that this country uh, did not protect its citizens now? There's a whole new group of citizens it has that it did not protect. Not a president, not a judge, not a city council member. So you're so so you're assumingly freed from slavery. You're given you're given citizenship. And then the 15th Amendment comes around that gives you the right to vote. That gave us the right to vote. So now you have a generation of free freed slaves, freedmen, who are now able to be a part of the political makeup of this country. And we had made strides in those areas. So uh, whether it was judges or lawyers that became judges, uh, whether it was some of the first African-Americans to be elected to Congress and to representatives in some of these southern states under the Republican Party. Um, and soon we know that that made a switch after FDR and the what was Republican uh, switched to Democrat. And you can read about that. And what was Democrat switched to Republican. We have what we have today. Uh, but at one point, the Demo at one point, the Democrats were the Southern conservative racists, and the Republicans were the Northern liberals. And then we that had a switch. But that's a whole other history lesson. But now these freedmen slaves of the Fifteenth Amendment now have a chance to vote. Now, ask me this question: In the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, now you have a you have the right to vote. And then women will be able to vote by the 1920s. All women will be able to vote. Did that stop us from being lynched? Did that stop our churches from being bombed? Did that stop Tulsa, Oklahoma from being burnt down? Durham, North Carolina, the Pinch District in Memphis, Tennessee. Did any of that change the makeup of this country when it comes to African-Americans? Did it stop racism? Did it stop prejudice? Did it stop Jim Crow? The obvious answer is no, it did not. It didn't stop any of that. It didn't stop any of it. So the podcast is entitled, Does Government Matter in the African-American Community? Or does, 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 does government matter in the black community? And so far, I would have to say the answer is no. So up until the 15th Amendment, whether we participated in government or didn't participate in government, it didn't change our outlook in this country whatsoever. But something happened. Something happened between the 15th Amendment and Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. And that would be the great Depression, the Great Depression. And we know all about the Great Depression, how the banks failed, the economy failed. It was, it was, it was the darkest time this country has ever, ever seen. People losing jobs, uh, soup kitchens open up, lines wrapped around the corner. Um, uh, grown men can't find jobs. You're losing your house. And just it was, it was tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Uh, when we're talking about the makeup of an American family, right? It all went down in the Great Depression. So after the Great Depression, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected as president and he ran on the promise of what he called a new deal. So a whole bunch of sweeping plans, um, a lot of that's where we get our Social Security Act from. Um, that's where we get the if you're in Tennessee, the TVA. Uh, that's where that comes from. Um, that's where we get our public housing came out of the New Deal. Um, and But a lot of these things, we look back at it and say, oh, man, all this great stuff happened, this, that, and the other, as an African-American community, not realizing that a lot of that stuff wasn't for us. It didn't work for us. It wasn't built for us. And we're about to see whether or not we actually benefit it. I have in my hands here, it's called Digital History uh, from the University of Houston. So you can go to digitalhistory.uh.edu um, and find a lot of cool history stuff. I'm kind of a history nerd, history buff, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but this article uh, is entitled African Americans and the New Deal. 
African-Americans in the New Deal. So it first kind of explains very quickly what the New Deal was. And then if you go down to the third paragraph, it says that the uh, most New Deal programs discriminated against blacks. Say that again. Most New Deal programs discriminated against blacks. Uh, One such program was NRA. uh, I believe that's the National Recovery Agency. That's talking about jobs. For example, uh, the NRA, the National Recovery Agency, not only offered whites the first crack at jobs, but authorized separate and lower pay scales for blacks. The Federal Housing Authority refused to guarantee mortgages for blacks who tried to buy in white neighborhoods. And the CCC maintained segregated camps. Furthermore, the Social Security Act Act excluded those job categories black people traditionally filled. So let's break this down. So now you have this new deal. You're coming out of the Great Depression. There's three things that you need very quickly. You need a house, you need a job, and you need security, right? So that last thing is something that we did not have Um, And that's how the Great Depression happened. There were no safeguards. So you need a home to house your family. You need a job to pay for that housing. And you need security to make sure that your money um, is never touched or messed up again. You need a retirement plan. That's the Social Security Act. It guaranteed pensions for all workers in the United States of America. But the National Recovery Act allowed white people to get the best jobs first and left black folks with the worst of the worst jobs that paid the lowest wages. The housing authority, not only did the housing authority deny mortgages for black people who try to buy in white neighborhoods, they also also denied uh, black tenants in public housing. You have to realize that public housing was not for us in the beginning. It was for uh, it was for um, lower middle class or poor white families. So that's why when you look at old pictures of uh, the Cabrini Greens or some of the public housing in whatever uh, city that you're in, uh, you see a lot of white families in those. You can see there's documentaries talking about uh, how the New Deal uh, messed up uh, black folks. It, it, t- it talks about a guy who um, he had a house. He made good money relative to the black people around him. Uh, so he had the best job in the black community, but the worst job where he worked. So how does that how that how does that happen? So he worked on a rail car. So he pretty much was a server on the rail car. He served food on the rail car on the train. So back then we didn't have. Uh, planes wasn't a huge thing. Uh, people weren't traveling from New York to California in their cars um, and all that, all that crazy stuff. So you had the train system. And on this train system, because you were going long distances, they had food, which they still have today. And back then you had servers, which nine times out of 10, it was a black man serving you food on that train. So you're not the engineer. You're not the conductor. You're the server. The worst job on the train, but the best job out of that neighborhood. Why? Because it paid you some money. It was a job. But it was the worst job where you were. And that's and that's how we were treated. So these these programs were given. But we got the worst of it. If that makes any sense. So, yes, jobs were offered, but we got the worst jobs and the worst wages. Yes, housing was offered, but we got the worst housing and the worst neighborhoods. And, yes, Social Security Act was offered. Pensions were offered. But they excluded the jobs that most black people worked in. So, if you were a server on a rail car, odds are you ain't getting no pension. If you were a sharecropper, odds are you ain't getting no pension. If you are a maid, odds are you ain't getting no, you ain't getting no pension. If you're a nanny... Odds are you're not getting a pension because those are jobs that 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 black folks traditionally worked back in that time. And the Social Security Agency 
purposely discriminated against jobs that black people traditionally work. Now, were there white sharecroppers? Maybe. Were there white nannies? Sure. Were there white maids? Absolutely. Were there some white folks that worked on that rail car? You bet there were. But here's one thing that I've learned in my 33 years of life here on this earth. When people do evil things, they're willing to sacrifice their own so that they can destroy a whole. That was true back then. That's true today. I'll say it again. That was true back then. And that is true today. So let's 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 kind of a transition, right? Transition. We, we, we've seen that these amendments and all this stuff, it ain't working. Our voter, us voting for stuff, it ain't working. It ain't changed nothing. Let's look at let's look at these 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 acts that we got. So the Civil Rights Act and the Voters' Rights Act that Martin Luther King, um, Brother Abernathy, I mean, so many others died, gave their lives to see that this stuff would happen. Has that changed? Has that worked out for us? So let's read what the Civil Act was, the Civil Rights Act was, because the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act um, kind of go hand in hand, right? So the Civil Rights Act is a landmark civil rights and labor law in the United States that outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It prohibits unequal application of voter registration requirements and racial segregation in schools and and employment and public accommodations. We know that the Voting Rights Act is kind of the same thing. Um, So back then, in order to vote as a black person, you would have to go through these poll taxes. You have to pay poll taxes. You had to go through this grandfather clause. You had to take a a, you had to take a literacy test and all this other dumb stuff just so you can vote. I mean, they only did that to black people. Nobody else. Right. Only to black people. So that so it would deter us from voting. Um, And then the Civil Rights Act came on top of that and said that, man, not only can you not not only. Can you not discriminate in voting, but you cannot discriminate in employment. You cannot ins- discriminate in schools um, based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. I'll bring the question up again. Has anything changed? Let's give one example. The Civil Rights Act says you cannot long racial lines, religious lines, sex, or national origin uh, you can't discriminate and racially segregate in schools. I'll tell you right now, I live in Memphis, Tennessee. These schools are very racially segregated. Now, you have an all-white school. You may have a couple of black kids in there. You have all-black school. You may have a couple of white kids. But for the most part, they're segregated. What happened in the 60s when they dismantled when they, or when they integrated the public schools? If you go look at a lot of these Christian universities and private Christian elementary schools, high schools, you'll find that a lot of them were founded in the late 60s and the early 70s. Why is that? That's because the Civil Rights Act was was passed, Brown versus Board of Education had went through, and now Negro children can sit next to Sally, Sue, and Benny in the classroom, and parents didn't like that. So they said, how can we get around this law? Because we can't tell them they can't come here no more. National Guard have been over here, making sure they're up in here. They're coming to our universities. They're coming to our schools. Ah, I got it. Let's open up a bunch of religious-based schools, privatize them, and now... We can decide who comes in and who doesn't based on anything we want to base it on because we're a private school. So if you're black, you're not getting in. If you're poor, you're not getting in. If you don't observe the same religion I observe, you're not getting in. Prime example, and people think, oh, that happened back way back then. That's everybody's example. Well, that was back then. Get over it. 
Well, at one point, before I was in the truth, my children were in <clears throat> were in a Christian, a private Christian school. <clears throat> they have since been taken out of that school. They go to public school now. But but we had some friends who were trying to get their daughter into the same private Christian school. Their daughter has a learning disability. One of the sweetest girls you'll ever meet. Um, she's smart. She's 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 quick. Um, I mean, I even even when her parents try to get on her, I defend her. All right. One of the sweetest little girls you'll ever meet. But because she had a learning disability, this certain private Christian school had the ability to deny her entry because they didn't want a stigma of children with learning disabilities in their school. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? They didn't want people with learning disabilities in their school. (laughs) So I'll say again, no matter what we do, we can turn out in large numbers to vote. We can get constitutions uh, amended. We can have presidents have these sweeping deals. But the question is, what, if anything, has changed? What's changed? One more commercial break. And when we come back, we'll see what President Barack Obama uh, did for the African-American community, if that changed anything. Okay, so we are we are back. We are back. So it, it's we've covered a lot of stuff, right? So we've talked about how black voter turnout doesn't matter, don't change nothing. Uh, we talked about how the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments didn't really change nothing. Civil Rights Act didn't really change nothing. And when I say change stuff, I'm talking about as far as uh, what our neighborhood looks like, the chances we have, um, because obviously we still that we can see that we can still be shot in the streets. Um, and nothing's done, whether it's by a police officer or whether it's by our, the people that's in our community. It doesn't matter. A black life lost is a black life lost. I don't care whose hand did it. It's a travesty and it shouldn't be happening. Um, and the fact that it's happening by police and nobody's doing anything and the fact that it's happening by our own hands um, and nobody's doing anything shows that there is that we ourselves have been conditioned uh, to believe that our lives are worthless and the communities around us have been conditioned to believe that our lives are worthless. So our black voter turnout doesn't change that. The 14th, 15th, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment does not change that. The Civil Rights Act does not change that. And the FDR's New Deal does not change that. Now, uh, because of some of the things that Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Abernathy, and all these people did, um, the Talents at 10th, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, the, the, the Tuskegee Institute, um, HBCUs, um, um, uh, and all these other different things, uh, uh, Thurgood Marshalls, Brown versus Board of Education, um, uh, affirmative action. Have, 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 any of these, have any of these things, at least on a small scale, helped us? Absolutely they have. You'd be a fool to say they have not. But in a bigger overall arching scale, That's what I'm talking about. Have they changed the way that we're treated in this country? Have they changed the way that our lives are regarded in this country? Has it changed the way that our children are being educated in this country? Has it changed the population of black men and women in the prison system in this country? I'm talking about stuff that matters. The overarching thing one black person getting into Harvard or getting a job at Goldman Sachs, it don't matter because that person that's living in the south side of whatever city is still struggling and their life still means nothing. Unless that one person who went to Harvard, got a job at Goldman Sachs, goes back home and pulls some people up with him, pulls some people up with her. And they may not be able to get into Harvard. 
But you work at Goldman Sachs. You can teach them financial skills. They may not be able to get into Princeton Law. But man, now you know law. You can put them up on, you can, you can give them a job they ain't qualified for and give them some, some on-the-job training. Because it happens all the time in corporate America. They call it nepotism. Somebody's CEO son ain't qualified for that job. Somebody's CEO nephew ain't qualified for that job. But yet they still got that job and they get some on-the-job training. And then years later, all of a sudden, they're the COO, the CEO, the president of this, the vice president of that, making all this kind of money when they don't have no college degree or any experience. Why can't we do the same thing? But I digress. I'll go down a rabbit hole talking about that stuff. Let me throw out some stats for you real quick before we get into what Obama did or didn't do for us. And does that change anything? These are the people that represent us in Congress. All the black folks that's in Congress. That's part of the uh, the black congressional caucus. So the African-Americans that represent us in Congress, there's 56 black people. African-Americans, whatever you want to call them, that's in Congress right now. They represent 26 states, Washington, D.C., and the Virgin Islands. Now, I was talking to my wife, and I said, man, Congress had, there's a lot of folks in Congress, right? I think, I don't know the exact number, three, four hundred some people that, that's represented in Congress. So 56 people sound small, 26 states sound small, D.C. and Virginia and the Virgin Islands sound small. But think if the Muslim community had this much representation in Congress and how much their communities would change. Think if the Native Americans would have this much representative in Congress and how much their communities would change. But they don't. And we do. And our communities ain't changed yet. For the Israelites listening, you already know where I'm going with this. They ain't got the curses of Deuteronomy on them. We do. Deuteronomy 2868 is on us. Because we failed. Our ancestors failed. Now we're in the situation that we're in. We have to accept that punishment. We have to ask for forgiveness. We have to ask for forgiveness as Leviticus 26 tells us, not only for our sins, but the sins of our fathers. We have to turn our hearts back to the Torah. We have to accept the covenant all over again. We have to hold on to the witness of Yahushua, who the world knows as Jesus the Christ. And no, we cannot escape captivity, but we can have a level of decent life within it. Because Daniel had a level of decent life in the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah, Nehemiah. Ezekiel, Ezra, you can go all the way down the list. And even in the Roman and the Greek captivity, although it was rough for us at, rough for us at first in the Greek captivity until the Maccabees came along, in the Roman captivity, we had a lot of power. We had our own temple in our own land. So even within captivity, we can still have a level of decent living. But 56 representatives, they represent 26 states, Washington, D.C., and the Virgin Islands, and your neighborhood ain't changed in 20 years. What did Obama do for us? All right. I'm just going to hit the major points, right? So I'm getting this from ObamaWhiteHouse.archives.gov. This tells us everything that President Barack Obama did for the African-American community. So it says the progress of the African-American community during the Obama administration. This is straight from the White House. So key accomplishments in labor, market income, and poverty. So I'm just going to read all the highlighted stuff. Since then, the African-American unemployment rate has seen a larger percentage point decline in the recovery following much faster than the overall unemployment rate over the last year. So the whole paragraph says, the unemployment rate of African-Americans peaked at 16.8% in March 2010 after the, exper uh, the experiencing a large percentage point increase from its pre-recession average to its peak than the overall employment rate did. Since then, so since that 16.8% is in 2010, the African-American unemployment rate 
has seen the largest percentage decline in the recovery, following much faster than the overall unemployment rate over the last year. Trump would like to take credit for that, but it looks like that's something uh, Barack Obama did. It says the poverty rate for African-Americans fell faster in 2015 than in any other year since 1999. It says African-American children also made large gains in 2015, with the poverty rate falling from 14.2 percentage points and 400,000 fewer children in poverty. In the health sector, since the start of the Affordable Care Act, as most people know as Obamacare, first open enrollment period at the end of 2013, the uninsured rate among non-elderly African Americans has declined by more than half. So more of us are getting health care. More of us are being able to get into the doctor's office and getting checked at. Um, and they can detect things before they happen, whether it's diabetes or obesity or high blood pressure um, or, what it, or whatever it may be. Uh, it says teen pregnancy among African American women is at a historical low. Life expectancy at birth it is at its highest it's ever been for African-Americans. And that's huge, y'all, because here in Memphis, at one point, I don't know if it's still true, I have to look this up, but here in Memphis, Tennessee, the baby mortality rate in the African-American community was worse than third world countries. I'm going to say that again because I don't think y'all heard me. The baby mortality rate in Memphis, Tennessee was worse than third world countries. What do you do in education? The high school graduation rate for African-American students is at its highest point in history. Since the president took office, over one million more black and Hispanic students enrolled in college. Among African-Americans and Hispanic students, 25 and older, high school, comp uh, high school completion is higher than ever before. Support for the HBCUs. The U.S. Department of Education is responsible for funding more than $4 billion for HBCUs each year. Pell Grant funding for HBCU students increased significantly between 2007 and 2014, growing from $523 million to $824 million. The president's fiscal year 2017 budget request proposed a new $30 million competitive grant program called the HBCU and Minority Serving Institutions Innovation for Completion Fund, designed to support, innovate, and advanced-based student-centered strategies and interventions to increase the number of low-income students completing degree programs at HBCUs and MSIs. So he's doing a lot so far, right? Uh, the first, the first in the world program provided unique opportunities for HBCUs to compete for grants focused on innovation to drive student success. In the criminal justice sector, the incarceration rate for African-American men and women fell during each year of Obama's administration and are at the lowest points in over two decades. The number of juveniles in secure detentions has been reduced dramatically over the last decade. All right. The president has ordered the Justice Department to ban the use of solitary confinement for juveniles held in federal custody. Um, it says, my brother's keeper. Nearly 250 communities in all 50 states, 19 tribal nations, Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico have accepted the president's My Brother's Keeper Community Challenge to dedicate resources and execute their own strategic plans to ensure all young people can reach their full potential. Inspired by the president's call to action, uh, philanthropic and other private organizations have committed to provide more than $600 million in grants and kid resources and $101 billion in low interest financing to expand opportunity for young people, more than tripling the initial private sector investment in 2014. Advancing equality for women and girls of color. In 2014, the Council of Women and Girls launched a specific work stream called Advancing Equality for Women and Girls of Color to ensure that policies and programs across the federal government um, appropriately uh, take into account the unique obstacles that women and girls of color can face. This work has also inspired um, independent communities to advance equality, uh, including a $100 million five-year funding initiative by Prosperity Together, a coalition of women's uh, foundations to improve ec economic, economic prosperity. I'm sorry, uh, my mouth is dry and I didn't get a cup of water, being straight honest with you. So I'm stuttering these words a little bit. I apologize. 
but it says to improve the economic prosperity for income, low-income women and women and girls of color and a $75 million funding commitment by the collaborative to advance equality through research. We go through this. He's done a lot of stuff for small business, uh, civil rights division, the Department of Justice, civil rights division, continue to enforce the federal law. Um, it says President Obama has made 62 lifetime appointments of African-Americans to serve on the federal branch. Um, so those are judges. But in all of that, so people say, oh, Barack Obama didn't do nothing for the African-American community. I didn't read everything. y'all. There's I mean, there's like a good 50 different bullet points here um, of different things and then sub bullet points. Um, that he has done in his administration actually did for the African-American community. But the question remains, when you wake up in the morning, when you come home from your job and you drive down your street, the question is, after high voter turnout, after the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, after FDR's New Deal, after the Civil Rights Act, after the Voting Rights Act, after the first president of color being voted in and doing all these things, what's changed? What's changed? My perspective is that nothing will change as long as we keep putting our hope and our dreams in politics, and in government. Can they help us every now and again with a little bit of things? Absolutely. But if we want our communities to change for the better, we need to wake up and realize that we are the seed of Jacob, a chosen race of Israel, the people who God chose to bring salvation to the world. Yahushua said that salvation comes to the Yahudim, Judah, the house of Jacob. When we wake up and realize who we are as a people, because a sleeping people can get nothing done. We're trying to organize all this stuff, but our folks are still asleep, as Malcolm X would say. We need to wake up, realize that you're not black. You're not African-American. Those aren't nationalities. Black is a color. How are you going to be an African-American? That's two continents, man. You are a Hebrew Israelite. Hebrew by culture, Israelite by ethnicity. And because of that, our ancestors made a covenant with the creator of the Most High. We broke that covenant and now are under curses. And the only way to get out from under those curses, you read in Leviticus 26, is to turn back to the Torah, agree to the covenant, repent of our sins, repent of the sins of our forefathers, hold on to the testimony of Yahushua, And even when he comes back, the scriptures say that we will have no power. We will have no might in our hands. Now, that's not to say that we can't organize and build our own thing. But guess what? Just like Tulsa, just like Durham, just like the Pinch District in Memphis, there is a possibility that folks will come down and try to destroy it. We need to band together as a community. I think our issue is that we keep voting for these politicians. pushing the responsibility we have of our own neighborhood off on them thinking that they're going to do a better job. They, they've shown us that they have not. We know them by their fruits, their work. You can look out your front door and see right now no work's being done unless you're in a gentrified neighborhood, which means you're probably about to get kicked out anyway. You need to turn back to the Most High, band together as one, try to come up with ways that we ourselves can build our own communities and stop relying on folks in Washington to do what we need to do here at home. I thank you all for listening to another episode of Jacob Seed Podcast. A new episode is coming to you next week, every Thursday, as long as I can keep making these things. I'm glad you're listening. 
Share this with your family. Share this with your friends. Share this on SoundCloud. Uh, uh, I'm on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play Music, Stitcher. Um, I'm probably leaving something out. Something out. Wherever you get your podcast, I'm on Spotify, um, Anchor. Wherever you get your podcast, look up Jacob Seed. Share it on all your social media. Let everybody know that Jacob Seed Podcast is on. And remember. Call in with your comments and your questions, 901-300-7474, 901-300-7474, um, and I'll answer those questions or air those comments on the next podcast. Again, my brothers and sisters, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Jacob Seed Podcast, and remember, seek truth, live it out, and inform others. We read it like a master. Put on the